We'll skip the introduction for this week as we are bringing back Dr. Stephen Paulus. Hope you'll enjoy round two of questions and answers on the principles and philosophies of osteopathic medicine. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical experiences and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. We are bringing back this week Dr. Stephen Paulus to finish up the questions that we prepared about osteopathic medicine and osteopathic philosophy. So thanks again for being with us this week. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. And we can just jump right into it, given that uh, last week you shared with us a book recommendation, a movie recommendation, and told us about your hobbies. So let's just jump right in. So we left off with question four, and that question reads as the following. What does it mean to find health in a patient? Is health something palpable? What does health imply? freely moving tissue and joint mechanics. You have said on your podcast, um, Osteopathy Unplugged, health plus disease equals healing. Health necessary for healing. Well, let's start with the last question and move on to the other ones in each of their own order. Healing emerges from our healing emerges from the health in the body. Healing does not emerge from what's diseased. And that's really important. So the formula, the mathematical formula that I utilize for healing is health plus disease equals healing. So the goal of an osteopath is to identify health as a perceptual field. And then to use that reference point, then when finding disease, such as a osteopathic lesion, somatic dysfunction, an area of inertia or lack of motion, and then you bring those two together and then healing occurs. It's really important to note that the osteopath does not heal the patient. The patient heals the patient. Healing is the prerogative of the organism. Healing is the prerogative of the patient. As osteopaths, we remove obstructions to healing. We don't do the actual act of healing. So healing can broadly be categorized categorized as the therapeutic process within the body. The therapeutic processes in the body, some of which are known, some of which are not known. So for instance, clotting is a healing force, is a healing mechanism. Um, When you have a tendon injury, fibroblast migration to a tendon injury to help repair tendons is a measurable um, um, therapeutic process. When you have a fracture, we can actually measure the piezoelectric field or the around on the uh, in the periosteum that denotes that there's not a continuity of the periosteum in a fracture, and we can measure that. And when the piezoelectric field of the periosteum is restored, then we know that the bone is in a higher phase of healing. And we could go on and on and on talking about the immune system, the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, all the systems of the body have a certain amount of measurable therapeutic processes that we call healing. But those are the ones we know. Most of the process of healing we don't know and we have not yet identified. So what would you say to the question or if someone says, so Steve, why, 
what's the point of the osteopath then if the body has this inherent intrinsic capacity of self-healing? Our goal, our goal is to remove the obstructions to healing. So health exists as a field within the body that is always there. As long as you're alive, health is present. Health can be kind of, we might be able to kind of just say in a more colloquial way, health is the aliveness within the tissues, within the body. As osteopaths, we have the ability to contact that aliveness with our hands, but we don't do it by palpation. It's not something you can grab. It's not like something you can grab a, a hamstring, you grab a gastroc, you grab a muscle, you grab the tissues. It's not a physical force. It's a non-material field. And so we can perceive it, but we can't palpate it. If we use the health as the reference point, and then we combine that with the disease, and when I say that, sometimes we bring the health to the disease, other times we bring the disease to the health, and it doesn't really matter how you do that, that process is alchemical. But if we were gonna use a mathematical model, we'd say that process is algorithmic. So when in the osteopath perceivably with, with their attention contacts the field of the health and then contacts the field of disease and brings those together, something bigger happens. It's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals 20 or 30. So the reason why it's beneficial for the osteopath to find health is that when you consciously identify health, it augments the therapeutic process and people get better faster and you can treat more conditions that you didn't think you could treat previously. You have greater success. So you're, you're talking about health as this aliveness in the body, which Yes. Anybody who's living, therefore, has health. Absolutely. But you would say they would have this aliveness, they have this health to varying degrees, depending on the severity of their disease, such as, let's no, take for let's example. No, caution right there. I'm going to caution right there. The health is always powerful and always present. It's only the expression that gets blocked. Hmm. Disease blocks the expression of health. The goal of an osteopath is to remove that obstruction so that the fullest expression of health is available. Disease, I mean, first of all, you can be dying of cancer and you're going to be dying in two hours and you still have health and aliveness. The expression of that health and aliveness is blocked, but the health and the aliveness itself is not ever diminished. Hmm. Health is never diminished. Never. Its expression is blocked. It's expression. Hmm. Right. You, the body can't find it. Let me give you a good example. I mean, this, is, this happens a lot. I think I use the model of the abscess. I mean, think about well, how, why do we develop an abscess? So let's say your cat bites you in your arm. Mm -hmm. the, cat, the cat, those needle-like teeth inject into your, into your forearm bacteria your body instantly recognizes it, floods the area with white blood cells. And then what, something really remarkable happens. The body then will wall it off. And that's what an abscess is. And so the bacteria are inside this, this fortress. And then inside the fortress are also white blood cells. And the goal is to contain the infection. But commonly what happens with an abscess 
is that it festers and it's tenuous and the and it can stay there for days or weeks or months and if it ruptures then you can get sepsis but the key thing is that the body walls it off that walled off abscess is not available to the therapeutic process that happens all the time in the musculoskeletal system somebody injures their neck somebody injures their elbow somebody injures their hip what happens is the body sets up a series of compensations that restricts the motion walls it off those are those are defense mechanisms those are protective mechanisms if those protective mechanisms stay there too long it becomes like an abscess and the therapeutic process can't find it so now the abscess itself becomes a new problem and then the body reacts to that so you get layer upon layer upon layer of dysfunction oftentimes if someone has had five years of a particular problem it may have started as right hip pain now it's headaches or migraines you have to unpeel layer after layer it takes months of treatment and finally you get back to the original cause which was a hip problem hmm. and it can take weeks or months of treatment to get the layers unpeeled so if we can remove the abscess part then the therapeutic process can get to it the the the, the body sets up these defense mechanisms that are only meant to be used temporarily not chronically most okay. disease is caused by a abscess-like process that stays around for for months or years so if, if health is this perception and i guess my first question is is the health that an osteopathic physician is feeling when palpating or touching the body is that this feeling of livelihood, aliveness, lack of restriction, lack of obstruction, you use that term. And, and if it is this lack of obstruction, this aliveness, then would you say that the perception of health, if you palpated a six-month-old baby, healthy baby, versus a 90-year-old person at the end of their life, would that perception by that same osteopathic physician be different as far as their perception of health in the individual? Yes and no. So one of the great things about treating babies, and early in my career, I, I treated a lot of infants and babies. And I would treat an infant and baby, the next patient would be a 90-year-old. I treat an infant and baby, the next patient would be a 60-year-old. I treat an infant or a baby, the next patient would be a 40-year-old. And so what's great about treating infants, babies, and children is that the health is readily available to them. They're fresh. They're new. They rarely have a significant disease that is blocking the expression of their health. Health is so easy to find in a baby or a child. That's why children get sick really fast and they get better really fast. From an osteopathic point of view, treating children is easy it's much easier than treating an adult so as adults get older and older and older as they have as you know as their body starts to wear out because rust never sleeps they have more disease more obstruction more um, musculoskeletal ab abscess development or barriers to the expression of health and it gets harder to treat them so if you want to learn how to find the health perceptually alternate treating babies with uh, with older adults 
it's because then you can take that field and you can then go to the next person and it becomes easier to find because you just treated a baby. Mm -hmm. So, so what you're saying though, though, is health is, it's always there at a hundred percent, but in this baby, it's not obstructed, obstructed. So it right. just manifests more readily. Whereas in this 90 year old patient, because of the wear and tear of life, the, there's a hundred percent health there, but it's just not as easily perceivable due to these restrictions, these obstructions that, to their health. That's it. That's it. You, you nailed it. That is exactly right. Interesting. Okay. That's and it's not that, and so it's the same aliveness. I mean, everybody has their unique, every patient has their unique expression of health or the aliveness. It feels texturally perce- is perceived as being something a little bit different, but ultimately it's all the same. And so once you become skilled at finding the health, even in a 90 year old who's got a lot of disease, I can go straight to the health. Now, the hardest part, is not finding the health in a 90 year old. The hardest part is removing the obstructions to the full expression of the health. Hmm. So it's kind of looking at the coin, kind of the flip side of the coin. You're at, with the 90 year old, your attention is not on health so much as removing disease. No, it's concomitantly on both. I divide my okay. attention. My attention is always divided in two ways when I'm treating a patient. Part of me, part, so let's say, and I'm gonna say I divide my attention in two. I can actually divide my attention in three or even four. It gets a little bit more complicated to divide your attention in more than two ways. And that takes a lot of just skill and attention. But for the purpose of your, this discussion, half my attention is, is devoted towards maintain, is identifying the field of the health the other half of my attention is identifying the field of disease. And I'm constantly maintaining my connection with the health while I'm diagnosing disease and then doing something, meaning the osteopathic treatment that I'm engaging with the patient is done both looks biomechanically from the outside, let's say, but I'm also holding the health to augment that process. I see. It's kind of this ebb and flow between health and disease as you're doing your diagnosing and treating. Right. And at the same time, mm-hmm. my, my attention to the health never wavers. It's always there. Mm-hmm. In fact, okay. I always start a treatment engaging the health. Always. That's the and first thing I do. What is that? What does that mean? Engaging the health? I put my hands on the patient and I identify the perceptual field of the health. And then I, I hold it in part of my consciousness. Hmm. And then I go and I find dysfunctions or lesions or areas of inertia and then figure out what is the most important area of dysfunction or blockage to the health to treat. That's a different discussion. How do you prioritize treatment? That's not the purpose of this discussion. That's a different discussion. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That was, that was great. So let me just say, I don't want to say one other thing, but I think it's really important because we're talking about the body a lot. You know, and we, we all agree, or you and I are agreeing now that healing is the action that emerges from the health. But what about the emotions? So I have a quote that I say, this is my quote. 
the same forces of healing that fix a broken bone mend a broken heart. Let me say it again. The same forces of healing that fix a broken bone mend a broken heart. The human being does not have two separate systems of healing, two separate systems of health for the body or the psyche or the mind or the body, however you want to call it. The therapeutic process, the great umbrella of healing is the same for the mind and the emotions and the psyche as it is for the physical body. Meaning that it's all rooted in the body's inherent ability to heal itself. And it all comes from the health. So if you have a broken heart, that's just, you know, or you have mental illness or you have Mm -hmm. depression or you have a, or you have a grief reaction or you're somehow in psychological distress of some kind that can be healed. And that, that healing comes from the health in you, not from disease. The therapeutic process that heals a broken heart is the same therapeutic process that mends a broken bone. Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes I feel like, you know, if we go back to psychological illness, you know, bipolar disorder or anything like a generalized anxiety disorder, it almost seems like sometimes you need someone from the outside to, I guess, kind of spark that health or, you know, slap it around and wake it up. You know, the, the psychiatrist that you sit down with and you have cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Right. Well, I actually think that a really great psychologist or psychotherapist or psychiatrist, a really great one practices from an osteopathic context. In other words, a really great therapist will engage the health as the reference point and then use that to do the healing. I know that because I have a lot of friends who are psychologists and we talk about this and if I really kind of dissect out their language and, and then explain osteopathy and explain the, the quote from Still, to find health should be the object of the doctor. Anyone can find disease. They get it. They totally get it. And so the best psychotherapists engage the field of the health in the patient as the reference point while they're dealing with all of these psychologic issues. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to the next question here. Sure. Question, question five is the following. We create the conditions for the body to heal itself. Are there illnesses or conditions that OMT cannot help heal? And what would some of these be? We can't make someone young again. We can't make a 90-year-old 20 years old. We can't make a 50-year-old 30. So part of me is I never like the expression that patients say now. They'll say, you know, 50 is the new 30. 60 is the new 40. 70 is the new 50. I don't like that. It does not respect the, the, the biology of an aging body. So there are conditions that osteopathy can't help. We can't prevent aging. And I think that's a really important thing to say because there's some kind of implication that if we just find the health, remove all the obstructions, that someone will be in this kind of perfect state of 
blissful wellness and their body will return to some original state. And that just doesn't happen. So what if someone has cancer or sepsis or class four heart failure or renal failure, displaced fractures, ruptured tendons? Osteopathy can't treat those. We can treat the side effects of those. So in other words, if someone has a fracture, a displaced fracture of their tibia, and they had to have an open reduction, internal fixation, and then immobilization, they better receive osteopathy because the force that was put into their body wasn't just put into the femur. It went into the pelvis, the spine, all the way up to the cranium and affected the whole body. And then they're going to be on crutches. They're going to be immobilized. And the compensation that they have as a result of the surgery, the immobilization, the trying to get around in an altered way, they need osteopathy to help them adapt to the, to the fractured femur. So we can't treat, we can't cure these incredibly high level disease states like cancer. We don't cure cancer, but at the same light, I'm gonna say is that I've treated hundreds and hundreds of patients with cancer. And I actually consider osteopathy to be a key component of the palliative care model of taking care of cancer. I think that every person with cancer should see an osteopathic physician and receive osteopathic manipulation because we, what we do can help them adapt to the surgery, the chemo, the radiation, all of the effects of cancer much more efficiently and have fewer side effects from the treatment. So I think we're a key team member in the treatment of cancers. We don't talk about that very much. There's a very famous story from Arthur Hildreth, who wrote a book called The Lengthening Shadow of A.T. Still. Arthur Hildreth's father was dying of cancer and what was thought of then was stomach cancer. And A.T. Still used to come to the house, make a house call and treat him osteopathically. And Arthur Hildreth said that when Still came, his father would be in, have significant relief for, for days. And, it's, and his father did ultimately die. But this, the story, which Arthur Hildreth eloquently relays in The Lengthening Shadow of A.T. Still, is a perfect example of how osteopathy is really a key component to palliative care. In palliative care, it's not about cure. It's about caring for the patient to decrease their suffering, to decrease their agony, to increase their function. And we do that. We don't we don't have to have a situation where their problem is simple and osteopathy is going to completely get rid of the problem. That's, we do much more than that. So if a palliative care physician came to you and said, Hey, Dr. Paulus, what exactly can you do for my, my, um, my palliative care patient? What would you, what would your, I guess, sales pitch to them be? I'd say, give me the condition. Let's just start with one. You have a woman with metastatic breast cancer with metastatic lesions to the ribs. How can you help that? I'd say you've obviously done um, focal radiation therapy to those ribs that helps to decrease the pain, but those ribs still don't move. I can, by osteopathic treatment, I can help the ribs, the thorax to move better. I can increase venous and lymphatic flow. I can make sure that her thoracic outlet or thoracic inlet is, has free movement of fluids you know, above and below, um, above and below that anatomic um, space. And they can then be 
more comfortable, have less suffering, and use fewer pain medicines. I'm not gonna say they use no pain medicines, but in my experience, I can take a person with cancer who is on narcotics and they can either go off narcotics or dramatically decrease their narcotics to a lower level so their cognitive function can remain high. I don't okay. cure their cancer. I make them more, I help to make them more functional. I help to increase the expression of health by removing the obstructions. And that works in the model of cancer and palliative care. Sure. But I don't have any studies to prove that. We could do that. That would be a great model to have us as a study in palliative care in cancer patients. I know that what we do helps because I have hundreds and hundreds of case studies showing that what I do helps cancer patients. Yeah. But it doesn't cure them, but it doesn't cure them. Sure, but maybe increases their, their function, their quality of life, maybe decreases their, their pain level. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be that would be a great study to do. Hopefully someone does that, that study. So essentially summarizing your answer to this question is that osteopathy does not cure certain illnesses or disease processes like a rotator cuff injury, a, um, a myocardial infarction, cancer. But osteopathic treatments can be in a an assistance to these disease processes to help the patient be more functional, decrease their pain level by increasing lymphatic flow, circulation, joint mechanic mobility, etc. Yes, absolutely. I see. Okay. Fantastic. Anything else you wanted to add to that question, Steve? You know, just in kind of in general, when patients will ask me something, like they'll say, to say, well, can you fix me? Can you cure me? You know, I have a shoulder problem. I just want to be fixed. I want to be cured. I, I don't like the fix word and I don't like the cure word. And I know that there's a very famous quote from Still, find it, fix it, leave it alone. And we can talk about that in another, in a, in a, later on in this, in this interview. But when a patient asks me to fix them, I say, I don't fix you and I can't cure you. I say, my goal is to remove the obstructions so that you can heal it yourself. The responsibility for healing is the patient's, not mine. My responsibility is to be attentive, to hold the field of the health, find the disease or the obstructions, and remove the obstructions as best that I can. The healing comes from the patient. So it's like with a laceration. You know, when you have a laceration and somebody stitches it up, when you, the stitches don't heal the laceration, they just bring it together so there's less of a scar. The healing comes from the patient. And the same thing with osteopathy. I don't heal. In fact, I don't even like the term healer. I don't consider myself a healer. I consider myself an osteopathic physician. And the patient is the healer. I just help them to heal better. And I know this sounds like word salad, but I educate my patients so that they know what I do and what I don't do. Would you say that most of your patients don't come into your office with the 
philosophy, Dr. Paulus is going to fix me or heal me. They may start that way, but they don't end that way. <laughs> yeah. So what we have to, as doctors, we have to educate. It doesn't matter whether you're a DO or an MD. As doctors, we need to educate our patients concerning our personal philosophy of healthcare, our personal philosophy of medicine, our personal philosophy of osteopathy. So the first few treatments are really an orientation process into my philosophy. Now, what's interesting is that most of the patients who come and see me, they like my philosophy. They've, because I see patients who, you know, so I see, I'll see a 40 year old woman, then I'll see her husband and I'll see their kids and then I'll see their parents. So I see whole families and I see their neighbors and I see their coworkers. And so people come to me by these connections. You know, I see one patient and then I see this whole network of their community. So when people come in with that shared connection, then those patients are easier, but I'm still always educating my patients. Those first few times I see them is really an orientation process into my philosophy of healthcare. And, but there's a small percentage of patients who say, I don't agree with that. We can't be everybody's doctor. So those patients go see somebody else because they'll say, I want you to cure me. I say, I can't do that. No, well, that's what you're supposed to do. No, you cure yourself. You fix yourself. I just remove the obstruction so you can better do it yourself. You're stuck. You can't do it yourself right now. And I'm going to help you so that it will, it'll be more efficient. Some people don't like that language and they go see somebody else. So do you see yourself almost more like a, a life coach educating these people about how to find the health within them? No, I'm not a life coach. I'm a physician. So what I do is when people come, to, why do people come and see doctors? People come to see doctors because they can't heal themselves. They, they're stuck. I'll tell you a great story. So when I was a resident in family practice at the University of Nevada in Reno, I was on um, doing a cardiology service and a, I had to admit a patient who from a little small town in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, she was a rancher, uh, been a rancher all her life. She was 84 years old. She, um, she, I said, okay, and she was coming in for a pacemaker because she had bra significant bradycardia. She's on bradycardia episodes down to the 30s. And then she passed out and she would be dizzy and she'd get lightheaded and um, shortness of breath. So she came in for her pacemaker. So I was doing the, I was doing the H&P in there. I said, okay, so when was the last time you've seen a doctor? I, I said to her and I said, she said, oh, I saw it a week ago. I saw my doctor, saw the doctor in, the, in town and um, he said that I needed a pacemaker. So that's why I'm here. I said, Okay, well, prior to coming to see your doctor a week ago, when was the last time you saw a doctor? She said, oh, let's see, uh, 50 years ago. I said, what, 50 years ago? She said, yeah. And why did you see the doctor 50 years ago? Oh, he came to my house to deliver my last baby. <laughs> I said, okay, I mean, this is like, this is great. This lady was great. I yeah. said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play this game. I said, okay. You're 84 years old. You basically haven't seen a doctor for 50 years. And the last time you saw a doctor was for a normal thing, meaning you had your baby. What do you attribute your good health to? She said, not seeing doctors. <laughs> this is a perfect example of someone who had an incredibly powerful self-healing mechanisms. She didn't need an osteopath. She didn't need an MD. 
She didn't need someone to, to help her heal until her, her heart started to break down and she started to get bradycardia. Then she needed a pacemaker. But she was one of those rancher women, rancher women in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, they know how to take care of themselves. So the problem nowadays is that most people don't know how to take care of themselves. They've lost their connection with the natural world and they've lost their connection with their bodies. And it's getting harder and harder to treat patients. When I was, when I was in first, um, when I was a student, I went to a cranial academy conference and Robert Fulford lectured. And in that lecture, he said that, and he graduated from osteopathic school in something like 1930. He said, it was a lot easier to treat patients before World War II. And I, I went up to him afterwards and I said, Dr. Fulford, I, could you explain that? He said, and we talked about this for a long time um, in the hallway. And he explained, well, back in before World War II, it was an agrarian society, people lived on the land. Um, and then after World War II, people went to the cities and his feeling was that the loss of contact with the natural world was the reason why people were harder to treat. And I never really thought about that much until 9-11 happened. So I've been practicing for, for 32 years. People were easier to treat before 9-11. People you are much, much harder to treat now. What do you attribute that to? Fear. Fear is a powerful inhibi inhibition, inhibitor of the therapeutic process. It's a powerful inhibitor of the health. And what's really interesting is now with the pandemic, it's gotten even more difficult. I can say before the pandemic, people were easier to treat. And now it's re they're really hard to treat because fear has become magnified. I think the basic problem with our culture right now and maybe with the world is we're afraid and fear is disease producing hmm. i mean i also would say that our culture is we live in a culture of pharmacology as well where pills people seem to want there's a certain population of people that want the pill to fix them and sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes sure. it's necessary, right? Uh, I, I want to put that out there. I'm not an anti-pharmacology, but no, it, neither am I, neither am I. But I'm I, I'm I'm pro I'm pro appropriate pharmacology. Sure, absolutely. But I feel like there's this general mentality sometimes within our culture that it, it just seems to be the easy way out. Give me the pill to fix my problem. It wasn't like that before 9/11. Yeah. People trusted more. They trusted in more in their natural ability to get well. Mm -hmm. They trusted there's something different. Something changed. And the best way I can explain it is fear. But there's it's more than that. Yeah. I definitely have run into a fair number of you know, younger families. You know, maybe because I'm from the Pacific Northwest, uh, that maybe are, have more contact with nature. Maybe that's it. And they want to try the most conservative approach to getting healthy, whether that's sleeping more, drinking more water, eating healthier, exercising more before they go to the pharmacological approach. Sure. 
and I would say in my practice, both in when I was in California, I practiced in Watsonville, California for most of my time there. I had a lot of farmers in my practice. In Vermont, I have a lot of farmers in my practice. And I will tell you, farmers are much easier to treat than city folk. Interesting. Well, let's move on to question six. Sure. How, how can the osteopathic physician get in the way of healing? Boy, that's a big question. And there's a lot of different ways. And I don't even know which one would be the most important, but I'm just going to kind of run down a list. So the first one would be having an agenda. So if, if an osteopath believes that they're doing the fixing and they're doing the curing, I'm going to tell you is that will get in the way of people healing, their healing. And you will, help, you will be able to, you will help fewer people. The next one would be if you only treat pain. If, you, if your goal is to treat pain and that you're a pain doctor and getting rid of pain, then your fewer patients are going to get better. Another one is using templates or formulas or algorithms. So if you just do a, if you always just do a 10 step protocol and you just do this, give this patient, every patient gets the same treatment, you're not gonna be able to help as many people and you could very well get in the way of healing because you're not identifying individual needs with the patient. Another one, which is um, kind of um, hard to explain in the cranial model is that it's called invading the mechanism. It's where you put your hands on a patient and you put your, you dive your attention too much into the patient. You actually, the best way to say it is that you're staring at the patient. All of us feel uncomfortable when we're stared at. So if you, if you invade their body with, with an, over like a vectorial arrow of attention, people feel uncomfortable and they shut down your access to the health. On the other hand, there's an opposite of invading the mechanism and it's called hovering. Hovering is where an osteopath puts their hands on the patient, generally more in the cranial model, and they don't do anything. They actually stay so far away from the patient. They're, they're so inattentive that they're not doing anything. Another one would be trying to do too much. So a lot of DOs will say, well, you know, let me just, if I just do everything, then they'll get better. No, you can actually overtreat. And overtreatment is a problem. And it happens much more commonly when we're early in practice and rarely when you're experienced. But on the other hand, the opposite of that is doing too little. So doing too little would be basically, um, you don't really identify the necessity that the patient needs. So how do, you, how do you organize a treatment to prioritize the most important things to treat? That takes a lot of experience. And so early on, it's easy to treat too little and just treat the wrong things. Therefore, people don't get better. And finally, there's the term, have you ever heard the term engine wiping? No, I haven't. So it's a, it's a term that comes from A.T. Still. And A.T. Still was, A.T. Still was an exacting teacher. And he didn't, he wanted people to be perceptually accurate and anatomically accurate. Engine wiping is just kind of doing all these nice things to the body that are relaxing 
and 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 then but not doing it not really addressing the true cause of the problem so unfortunately i mean for most part massage is an engine wiping it's not osteopathy also so if your goal in treatment is relaxation people don't get better just being relaxed is not a powerful activator of the therapeutic process. So that's why the goal of an osteopathic treatment is not to relax the patient. The goal of an osteopathic treatment is to engage a therapeutic process and remove the obstructions to healing. So if your goal is relaxation, your patients won't get better. I see. So you first mentioned pain we shouldn't be treating pain. Would you agree that if you do treat to a sufficient amount, that pain reduction would be a secondary cause of that? Everybody comes in. So most, first of all, as osteopaths, most people who come to see us have a problem related to pain. Not all people, but most people. Most people that we see have a problem of pain relating in some ways to the musculoskeletal system. If you, if you treat pain, your patients don't get better. I know that from experience and it also violates the basic laws of osteopathy. So when patients come to me, they'll say, I want you to get rid of my pain. I say, I don't do that. I'm not a pain doctor. Well, then what good are you? I said, my goal is to identify what's healthy in you, remove the obstructions to the expression of your health, remove and then help you to have a, have a normal, natural therapeutic process where you can treat it yourself. The goal of an osteopathic treatment is to increase your function, not to decrease the pain. It's to remove the obstructions to healing so you can heal it yourself. This is a part of the education process that I have to give my patients. And some people come in and they say, I want pain relief and that's it, then I'm not the right doctor for you. What the effect of an osteopathic treatment, if, if I am true to the principles of osteopathy, then, and I don't treat, I don't chase pain, most people get better. So let's go back to A.T. Still. And he had a analogy that he used in his practice and that was the, a house that's burning down and the firefighters are coming to to deal with a burning house. He said, you wouldn't take the hose with the water and spray the smoke. Smoke is an effect. Fire is the cause. If you're treating pain, pain is smoke. It's not the fire. So if all you do is take your hose with your water and blow at the smoke, the smoke will blow away but you'll never address the true cause, which is the fire in the basement. You have to put, you have to identify the fire. Osteopaths find the fire. Now what's interesting as you go in early in practice, a lot of the patients where you'll have success, you'll say, well, I'm treating the pain. If you, a lot of times you end up, if this fire and the smoke are really close together, like in an acute case, if you just treat the pain, you're really close to where the fire is and then you'll get some, you'll get success but it's really important. It's actually antithetical to osteopathy to have your goal 
be to treat pain. But it, it seems to stand to reason that if you are increasing a patient's function by removing these obstructions to their body, whatever those may be, pain should decrease as a result of that. And most of the time it does, but not all the time. Yeah. Because we're never, we're not, our, treat, our osteopathy is not 100%. In other words, osteopathy is a beautiful system of healing. And it is one of the great systems of healing in the world. But why are there so many different systems of healing? You know, there's Western medicine, which has its own strengths, and it's the dominant system. There's osteopathy. There's Chinese medicine. There's homeopathic medicine. There's Tibetan medicine. There's Ayurvedic medicine. And we go on and on and on. There's lots of other fields of, of healing. Why are there so many fields of healing? It's because you have to identify certain diseases and conditions are helped better with, with each system. So for instance, if you get into a car accident and you've got, and you're, you know, you've got bones sticking out of you and you're all fractured and you've got ruptured spleen, you want to be close to a trauma center at a major hospital. That's Western medicine at its best. If, you, if you're a woman with, with confusing, um, confusing kind of hormonal problems related to menopause and uh, with, with a lot of um, with hot flashes and issues, Chinese medicine with needles and herbs is the forte. Funny rashes, I mean, really unusual rashes that nobody else can figure out, homeopathy. That's the best system. With chronic ear infections, osteopathy. People with head injuries, osteopathy. And I can go on and on what osteopathy is, its forte is, but those are just two examples. But what happens if this patient with the head injury comes to see you and you treat them four times and their head pain is not getting better? Is that when you kind of reassess what you're doing with them? Or do you have the conversation that, hey, maybe osteopathy is not the right treatment for you. Maybe you need to, I don't know, get a head CT or an MRI and go see neurology. Like, when do you make that call? So at this point in time, the way the culture has been, almost everybody who's had a significant head injury has, goes to the emergency room and gets a CT scan, whether they need it or not. And that's debatable whether they need it or not, but almost everybody. So by this point in time, especially in Vermont, if someone has a head injury and they call me, they've already had a CT scan. It's negative. What can neurology do for someone with a head injury? Almost nothing. Really, almost nothing. So there's not a lot of great evidence-based medicine around the treatment of head injuries. There's no drug. There's no, there's no prescription medication that definitively treats head injuries in a, in a, in a distinctive way that's beneficial. We do use drugs. Other doctors use drugs to treat head injuries. They treat, the, they treat some of the symptoms of head injuries. They don't treat the cause. Head injuries are best treated with hands-on osteopathy, particularly cranial osteopathy. But when people come in with post-concussive syndrome, what I tell them is that their post-concussive syndrome symptoms, 50% of them are due to a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, and 50% are due to the neck injury. Every single head injury is also has a neck injury that's significant. 100% of the time, there's never been a head injury 
that doesn't have a neck injury. I guess, man, I guess if you were lying on the ground and somebody dropped a brick on your head and you were just still, I, but that's not how people get head injuries. They slip, they fall, they're in car accidents, they, they, they fall skiing. There's always a neck injury. The neck injury part, I call it, it's at least 50% most of the time. The easiest part to treat in a head injury is the cervical spine injury part of the head injury process. The hardest part is the TBI component. And so depends on the, on the severity of the TBI and, and how many head injuries they've had. So if it's one head injury and I catch them early, I feel as though hands-on osteopathic manipulation helps significantly. But I also see people who had two, three, four head injuries. They've got some cognitive issues. They've got chronic headaches. They've got chronic neck pain. They've got fatigue. Those are complicated patients. I may need to treat, I may treat, need to treat them for months or a year to actually get to the point where they're managed well. Do you ever get to the point where you might think, hmm, maybe I'm missing something or maybe I need to send them to Dr. Gintis, my wife, who might lay a new set of eyes on this patient because they just don't seem to be getting better? Yes. And that when, first of all, is what's great about being an osteopathic physician to being an American DO is that we're doctors, we're physicians, we're fully licensed. So I do my own workups. So if somebody comes in and, well, I'll give you a good example. I have a guy who came in um, about a month ago and he had bilateral knee pain. And, I, I, and he's a high level skier. He's about 50 years old, been skiing, but I haven't seen him in a long time. He's gained a lot of weight. He's deconditioned. I examined his knees and he, and I thought, these feel like arthritic knees, like osteoarthritis. I said, and I said, we need to get an x-ray. And I didn't treat him osteopathically because I needed to get information from the x-ray first because uh, I kind of, I squeezed him into a in-between appointment. So turns out his x-ray was normal. It did show soft tissue swelling and swelling in the joint, but his x-ray was normal. And it threw me. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I thought for sure he had osteoarthritis and he had early manifestation, a high level skier athlete. So now I have a choice. I could send him to another doctor, but who am I gonna send him to? So I'm suspecting that he has rheumatoid arthritis or Lyme disease. So I'm going lab tests. So I ordered a rheumatoid factor, um, um, CCP antibodies, an ANA, um, a sed rate, a C-reactive protein, Lyme, Lyme studies and also an HLA-B27. So I'm doing, I do a rheumatologic workup. And the goal mm -hmm. of doing a rheumatologic workup is to find then, could he have rheumatoid arthritis? Turns out the labs came back yesterday. The guy's rheumatoid factor and CCP antibodies were positive. He's got rheumatoid arthritis. He didn't have osteoarthritis. So yes, I, I work my patients up. If they need an MRI, I order an MRI. If they need a CT scan, I get a CT scan. If they need to do a spec CT, I get a spec CT. If they need to have lab tests, I do lab tests. If they need to be sent to a specialist, I send them to a specialist. Now, I'm not going to manage his rheumatoid arthritis. I'm going to treat him osteopathically to support him, but I'm sending him to a rheumatologist now. They're, I'm going, sure to, they're the, going to take over. And I'm sure the rheumatologist is grateful that you did the workout. Yeah, because I've already done, I've already done the, the heavy lifting for them. That's right.
Yeah. And so that's my, that's the family practice part of me. I'm a family physician. I'm an osteopath. I'm a physiologist. I've never give up being a physician. I love being a doctor. I love being an osteopath. When, if someone's not better within a certain period of time, then I need to either work them up or send them to the appropriate specialist. Yeah. You also talked about being too intent sometimes when you're treating a patient. I think you called it the invading mechanism. Right. How, how does one know that they're being too intent, I guess, in the treatment of their patient? It almost sounds like they're being too focused. If it that's is. Possible. It's too focused. It's staring. That's the best way I can, I can, I can um, give you the image. It's the patient is being stared at and they, they don't like it. They actually cringe and that cringing shuts them down and makes their system unavailable to you. How do you know, how does an osteopath know that they're invading the mechanism? It's best to be told by your mentor. It's best to be told by your teacher. But for that, it's almost like they have to see you do it. They have to be in the room with the patient. Well, that's what a mentor does, though. The, you, when you're with a mentor, the, your, your mentor is seeing you treat the patients and has the hand, your hands on your hands or hands on the patient's body and can perceive that the patient is shutting down and that you're invading the mechanism. When early in my years of practice, I, I took my first cranial course in 1983. The... The woman who taught the, the 40 hour introductory course gave me incredibly bad advice. She was very intimidating. She was very domineering. So when I would put my hands on a patient in the cranial course that I, in 1983, I'm a third year medical student. I could not feel the CRI. I could not feel the cranial rhythmic impulse. I felt something else. I felt slower rhythms. I felt a rhythm that was about two and a half cycles per minute, not six to eight per minute. I also felt the long tide, which is a really slow rhythm. So I said to her, I'm feeling this other stuff over here. She said, and I quote, you feel what I tell you to feel. Got it? So what I did, a rough day, a rough day. You gave me a rough um, 10 years. So what I did based upon her, beating me up. I mean, it was really bullying. It was a form of bullying that was just terrible. I manufactured the CRI, even though I couldn't feel it. And patients got treatment reactions all the time. They'd get dizzy, they'd get vertigo, they'd get headaches. And I basically stopped doing cranial osteopathy because I was hurting people because I was invading their mechanism. I was inducing a rate that wasn't there. In other words, I was making up a rate and I was forcing it into the body and it was, I was out of, out of sequence. I finally learned that I was doing it by, my, by one of my teachers who saw me doing it and then helped guide me, my, one of my main mentors who then guided me out of that habit and it changed my life. Dr. So that Dr. Was, Stiles? No, my three teachers were David Musgrave, uh, when I was in osteopathic medical school, Jim Jealous, who got, who was the one, the mentor who, and he, who took me out of this um, bad habit. And then my last um, mentor was Stanley Shiawitz. Okay. Okay. 
And then I also wanted to, to just dive a little bit deeper into what you were talking about um, when you said over-treating. You can over-treat a patient. Yes. Do you adhere to this idea of trying to find these key lesions in the body, which can then treat a more regional, complex somatic dysfunction? Um, I took a course from one of the main people who taught key lesions back in the 90s. I could never get it to work. It didn't work for me. That system doesn't resonate. I don't use it. Okay. Okay. And then how do you know if you're over-treating a patient? Is it that they just, they are worse after the treatment and remain worse until they see you next? Or, or how do you know? That's a really good question. Again, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go back to having a mentor. And I know that it's difficult and a lot of people don't have mentors. Remember, a mentor is a, is a teacher who takes a personal relationship. You have a personal relationship and and takes personal and takes interest in your professional development. So the best way is that a teacher points it out. The second best way is knowing that it's possible. We, we have to pay attention to what the patient needs. How do you know what the patient needs? That takes time. I would say early in my practice, I did one of two things. I either undertreated or I overtreated. And it probably took me about 10 years to really have a sense of when I was doing that and how I could trim down the overtreatment and increase the undertreatment. I I don't know how to say it anywhere other than that that so do patients and all the other thing would be if you overtreat fewer patients get better. Also, if you overtreat, generally it takes, it takes much longer time. So there's a lot of DOs. Well, my, my appointments are for, my follow-up appointments are for 30 minutes. So I only treat people for half an hour, but that's not the hands-on part. We have five minutes of talking at the start. We have five minutes of talking at the end. That means my hands-on part is really only 20 minutes. Okay. If you treat for if you treat for longer than a half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, the chance of overtreating is much higher. Also, the chances of engine wiping is higher too. So a lot of people like it when you just make nice, when you just you touch them all over, you'd spend 45 minutes does it mean that you're doing something helpful? No. No. You've got to go find the necessity of what they need. You got to narrow down your treatment. You have to find the priorities. Ultimately, it's through experience. You can speed up that experience by having a teacher or a mentor that shows you tricks to get there faster. I see. Okay, that's very helpful. So we're I can't believe it. We're already coming up on an hour. So maybe we can kind of summarize the responses to these last two questions. So sure. the, the seventh question still uses the phrase, find it, fix it, and leave it alone. What does it mean to find it? Are we trying to find health, somatic dysfunction, the underlying cause of a patient's pain? So find it is not to find health. Finding health is something different. Um, it's, not it's not finding pain itself, but it is trying to find the cause of pain. 
To find it is diagnosing the problem. So that means you have to be able to know what normal is so that you can know, understand abnormal. So the somatic dysfunction, the osteopathic lesion, the area of inertia, the lack of motion, the, or the area of hypermobility, all of those are the it. That's the diagnostic component. The fix it part is the osteopathic manipulation part. The leave it alone is trusting in the natural ability of the body to self-heal. So my teacher, Stanley Shiawitz said, the most important part of an osteopathic treatment is to find it and to leave it alone. What most DOs focus on is the fix it part. You can't fix what you can't find. So he would always say to me, I would present an issue and, and I'd say, what about treating this particular condition? He says, where's the it? I said, what do you mean? Where's, where's the it? Where's the dysfunction? Where's the problem? Where's the lesion? Where's the, where's the area of inertia? I'd say, well, it's in the shoulder. How do you know that's the most important part, place to work? Well, that's where I looked first. <laughs> where you look first may not be the best place to start. Maybe you need to do a scan of the whole body to be able to understand how to prioritize. The most important part of a osteopathic treatment is, is the diagnosis part. The second, or actually, the most important part of an osteopathic treatment is leave it alone. The second most important part of an osteopathic treatment is find it. The least important part is the osteopathic manipulation part. If you can get that, the more accurate your diagnosis, the better the fix it part is, and then the more effective the leave it alone is. Now, what do you mean when you say leave it alone? Like after you've done your OMT treatment, then yep. when the patient comes back, you scan again. And if you don't find that same somatic dysfunction or restriction, leave then it. you leave it alone. You, you identify the specific anatomic or geographic location in the body where there's a problem. Then you apply a very specific osteopathic treatment that's anatomically specific and perceptually specific. Now your job is done. Your, do your job is done. The leave it alone means you trust in the natural ability of the body to do the rest. I see. That's what that means. The osteopath doesn't do the leave it alone part. The osteopath doesn't engage a therapeutic process. The osteopath only removes the obstructions to the therapeutic process. So you can't fix something unless you find it. So the more specific you are in diagnosis, the better you are as an osteopath. The more you trust in the natural ability of the body to self-heal, the better you are as an osteopath. If you think that you're doing the healing, that's not osteopathy. I find that, at least with myself, I get comfortable treating the same areas. And that's what I look for. You know, so if a patient commonly comes in with low back pain, I'm going to check the pubic tubercle. I'm going to check the innominates. I'm going to check the lumbar spine. I'm going to look at sacral mechanics. Um, I'm going to look at the SI joint. And I just find myself doing that again and again. Do you do a global, kind of a quick global scan head to toe for, for any reason that a patient comes to see you? Yes. And so I have my way of assessing the totality of that patient. And I do that very early in the treatment. And I have many different ways that I do that. I probably have a half a dozen ways, maybe a dozen ways in different for different patients in different situations where I look at the, the body 
as a whole to get an idea of what the necessity for that patient is. That's the first answer to the question. There's another answer to this question. It's very common for DOs to go to the lesions on a patient that are the lesions in themselves. So I'm gonna ask you a question. How often do you get treated osteopathically? Probably once a month. That's the goal. And so here's the thing, to be a good osteopath, to be a great osteopath, in my experience, you need to be treated on a regular basis. And the ideal is to have a treatment partner. Hmm. Interesting. So I get treat, I've been treated once every four to six weeks for 30 years. It makes me a better osteopath. So whenever I start to find something in a patient and I start to see it in the same patient over and over again, my first thought is, oh, oh, maybe I have a left shoulder problem. You know what? I need to call my treatment partner, Dr. John McPartland, and he and I have been treating each other for 12 years, every six weeks for 12 years. It is a, it is, I think it's one of the great things that we share as osteopaths and it's best to trade treatments. In other words, he treats me, I treat him. We do this together. It's, it, it's, and so I learn, I've learned so much by John McPartland treating me. Before that, my wife, Bonnie Gintis would treat me. And so easily for, you know, for 15 years, we treated each other once a month. I still treat Bonnie once a month, but she's retired now because she has metastatic breast cancer. So it's harder for her to treat me than it was before. That's why I shifted into seeing um, my friend, John McPartland. The relationship that we have with our treatment par partner is incredibly intimate. John and I have this really close relationship. It's like no other relationship I have. We know each other kind of on a nonverbal level. We've treated each other hundreds of times and there's things I know about him and he knows about me that nobody knows about. I'm not even sure I could put him into words and he'll say something like, I didn't even realize that. He knows me and I know him. That is a really special, intimate relationship. I feel very um, honored and also protective of his and my relationship. And I, I strongly encourage every DO to have a treatment partner and to share and trade treatments because you learn by treating, but you also learn by being treated. Yeah, I think that's, that's a big pearl that you just said. Um, I, I mean, I myself have been treated cranially and my cranial education wasn't so good to the point where I, I wasn't sure that it was real what we were being taught. And then one of my fellow residents started treating me because I, I clench and I grind my teeth and I have, you know, very, pretty significant um, TMJ discomfort started mm. treating me, releasing my medial lateral pterygoid, um, releasing the, or making sure my temporal bones were, you know, were paired and were easily moving into external rotation and doing a pride on frontal lift. And he started treating me and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. There's something to this. Yes. And so I, I, that resonates with me a lot that the importance of having a treatment partner and being treated on a, a, a regular basis.
Do you feel that you have learned different approaches, different techniques, or or learn more Absolutely. about your own body? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when when either Bonnie um, is treating, she still does treat me sometimes, but it's it's again, it's hard for her to treat osteopathically at this point in time. Uh, again, I treat her uh, at least once or twice a month. But um, when, so I'll go to John. So when John and I treat each other, there's just, um, there's this sense of discovery. There's this inquisitiveness. And even though we've been treating each other for 12 years, every once in a while I'll do something, I say, John, what are you doing? I've never seen you do that technique before. I said, oh, I've showed you that before. And I said, no way. You got to show me that I could do that again. And, it is, and I said, where, where'd you learn that from? He said, oh, I learned that from such and such a deal. I said, wow, that is a great technique. Wait, 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 let's switch parts. I want to try that. And so then we'll, then we'll go into, let me try it on you. And then, then yeah. show me it on me again. And we go back and forth. And it's really, and I'll do the same thing. You'll say, what are you doing? And I say, what, what do you mean what I'm doing? You've never done that treatment before. And then we do the same thing. So he learns from me and I learn from him and we teach each other. It's absolutely beautiful and wonderful. And he's yeah. a great osteopath. He's really one of the best osteopaths I've ever met. And I've been treated by hundreds of people, really. And I think the, the greatest osteopaths I've ever um, been treated by is, is both Bonnie Gintis and John McPartland. Yeah. Sounds like he knows your body really, really well. He's been treating it for many years. That's, that's great. Yeah. So let's go on to the last question, Steve. Sure. And it reads like this. You have read Still attentively. Why is it so important to read the writings of A.T. Still? What are the most important readings of Still to read and why? So I think it's really, I, I, we talked about this a little bit before at the end of the last um, podcast, part one. But let me repeat it again. Still was a brilliant visionary. He was a, an incredible clinician. He was a terrible teacher. And he was a really awful writer. I think he's very difficult to read. He's very difficult to understand. So where do you start with still? I think you need to start with con historical context. So I think reading Carol Trowbridge's book called A.T. Still will give you a basic historical context of who still was. It's the best book on the history of osteopathy, by far the best. And then after that, I would probably go to research and practice. I think it's probably the most concise book and you can get um, some ideas of what happens, what's, what's happening from, in osteopathy through that book. But all I'm going to say is that still is basically unreadable, but he's highly quotable. So the problem with still is that as you read him, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you read it and make your book, your let's say research and practice like a workbook, highlight one-liners, flag it, write in the margins, make it a workbook, and then start sorting some of those quotes. Put those quotes down on, you know, in your computer and start realizing that he does have um, a bunch of clues that he's planted throughout his writings. He didn't really, he wasn't organized. He inspired a whole generation of, of osteopaths in the 1800s and early 1900s and we owe an incredible debt of gratitude to his highly organized, highly intelligent students who really carried osteopathy into the next century. But I'm going to end by 
basically giving you a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson from one of his poems is one of my favorite Emerson quotes. He said, do not go where the path may lead, go instead to where there's no path and leave a trail. Still went bushwhacking. He went where there was no trail, where there was, there was no path. He went through the woods, he went off trail. But what he did was he left, he left clues of where he went. And in his books are those clues. You can find the trail that still took, but you have to read his books to find the little clues that tell you the direction he's taking. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for your time. And, and again, your thorough answering of these questions. Before we end, are there any plugs that you would like to make? I know you and your wife have a podcast. Sure. So the next set of, of episodes that we're going to be doing in our podcast, Osteopathy Unplugged, is going to be very different. We're going to take the whole concept of health. So it's going to be called the next episode is going to be called Finding Health, the Osteopathic Imperative. We're going to have about a half hour episode, which kind of goes through the didactics of health. But then we're going to have three additional parts, which are going to be very different and interesting. Part two of this is going to be a guided meditation on finding health in yourself. Then we're going to do episodes three and four are going to be oriented towards having a partner where you're on a table with a partner. And we're going to do a guided laboratory session of finding the health in two different contexts with your patients. So episode three will be one context or one way of finding the health. And you'll be doing this while you are hands-on your partner. And then part four will be another way of finding the health. So we're gonna be able to give you not just the verbal explanation of health from an osteopathic perspective, but a direct experience in yourself and with a partner or a patient that you're working with. And the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Right. And also, you go to, best place to go is to the website, which is osteopathyunplugged.com. That will give you the entry point into all the different forums. And if anybody would like to contact you, is the best way through the website? That's a good question. I don't really have an email that's public. If people want to contact me, they can call my office. Okay. And... Can we, is there a website that they can go to to get your, your contact info? Yes, so my, uh, my would be my name, which is stevepaulus.com. And that's my, that's my practice website. stevepaulus.com, perfect. Do you mind if I put that in the show notes? Absolutely, that'd be great. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks again, Dr. Paulus. And please send my regards, thoughts and prayers to your wife. Um, Thank you. And yeah, thanks so much again for being generous with your time and sharing your experience and your knowledge with, uh, with us this evening. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a, it was a pleasure. And it was very nice to um, talk with you, Dr. Green, over the phone and in your podcast. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll have to have you on again. Great. I would love to. Okay. You have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I thought this was a really insightful conversation with many pearls. I especially appreciated Dr. Paulus's recommendation to have a fellow osteopathic physician treat you habitually as a way to learn about your body and improve your OMT skills. 
check out Dr. Paulus and Dr. Gintis podcast, Osteopathy Unplugged, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also like the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast and leave us a review. Until next time.